You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Pride goeth before the fall, except in Atlanta where they do it in October. Two years ago, on the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, just in time for Pride Month, New York City officials announced a monument would be erected to honor pioneering LGBTQ activists Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson. Their names come up in the news a lot this time of year. But who were Rivera and Johnson? And what happened at the Stonewall Inn in 1969 that was big enough to be labeled the Stonewall Rebellion? Do we even know what really happened? My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. In the early hours of June 28, 1969, New York City police raided the Greenwich Village gay club called the Stonewall Inn. Let me set the scene for you. Gay clubs were much more than a place to get drunk or look for love. In the 1960s, and frankly all the decades leading up to it, they were not exactly accepting of LGBT people. Being queer wasn't only societally unacceptable, it was against the law. Same-sex relations between consenting adults were illegal in New York City until 1980, And you could be arrested on the street for not wearing at least three articles of gender-appropriate clothing. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that men in skirts found themselves on the receiving end of that one a lot more often than women in slacks did. Understandably, LGBT people flocked to gay bars and clubs, refuges where they could socialize and, more importantly, be themselves openly. You still weren't safe there, though. The New York City State Liquor Authority penalized and shut down gay bars, arguing that the mere gathering of more than three homosexuals was technically disorderly. These regulations were overturned in 1966, thanks to the efforts of strident activists. But things as simple as holding hands with someone of the same gender was still illegal, so police harassment of gay bars continued. There was another player in the game, The Mafia. The mob saw profit to be had in catering to the displaced and disenfranchised gay clientele. By the mid-1960s, the Genovese crime family controlled most of the gay bars in the village. In 1966, they purchased the Stonewall Inn, which had been a bog-standard bar and restaurant, renovated it on the cheap, and reopened it as a gay bar. Stonewall Inn was registered as a private bottle bar which did not require a liquor license because patrons were supposed to bring their own liquor. Club attendees had to sign their names in a book to maintain the club's membership facade. Police initially left the Stonewall Inn alone by dint of regular bribes from the Genoveses. Patrons benefited by the fact that the police weren't hassling the owners, but it also meant that the owners could run the club as they saw fit, which meant as cheaply as possible. The club lacked a fire exit. There was no running water behind the bar to wash the glasses, though there was plenty of water in the drinks themselves. 
and the less said about the bathrooms, the better. To further maximize profits, the Mafia reportedly blackmailed the club's wealthier patrons who needed to keep their sexuality a secret. Nonetheless, Stonewall Inn quickly became an important Greenwich Village institution. It welcomed drag queens and people who, at the time, identified themselves as transvestites, who were often ostracized from other gay bars. It was a haven for many runaways and homeless gay youth, who panhandled or shoplifted to pay the cover charge. Raids were still a fact of life, but corrupt cops would tip off the mob-owned bars before the raid so the owners could stash the alcohol they were selling without a license, not to mention any other illegal activities. The NYPD had actually stormed the Stonewall Inn just days before the riot-inducing raid. When police raided Stonewall Inn on the morning of June 28th, it came as a surprise. The bar hadn't been tipped off this time. Armed with a warrant, police officers entered the club, roughed up the patrons, and finding illegal liquor, arrested 13 people, including employees, and people caught violating the state's gender-appropriate clothing statute. Female officers would take patrons into the bathroom to make sure their genitalia matched their outfit. So, you've been shunned by your family and society. You've been told that who you are on the inside and who you love is wrong. You finally find somewhere where you can be with people who understand you, even if it is a filthy dive. And then this happens? Fed up with constant police harassment and social discrimination, angry patrons and neighbors became increasingly agitated as the events unfolded and people were aggressively manhandled. At one point, a male officer hit biracial lesbian drag king Stormy De La Vere over the head as he forced her into the paddy wagon. What are you standing there for? Do something! She yelled to the crowd, though she hardly needed to. Detailed research after the riots found that Stormy De La Vere not only shouted to the crowd, but had also punched the cop who was manhandling her. In 2008, when De La Vere was asked why she didn't come forward and take credit for her actions, she answered, Because it was never anybody's business. Popular history tells us that Marsha P. Johnson was one of the first, if not the first person to throw something that night. A few bricks and bottles later, and a full-blown riot erupted. The police, a few prisoners, and a Village Voice writer had to barricade themselves in the bar, which the crowd then attempted to burn down. The riot squad was able to get the people out of the building, and the fire department doused the flames. But they couldn't squelch the heat. Protests, sometimes involving thousands of people, would continue for five more days. In 2016, President Barack Obama designated the site of the riots, Stonewall Inn, Christopher Park, and the surrounding streets and sidewalks, a national monument in recognition of the area's contribution to gay and human rights, which are, of course, the same thing. There's already a monument to the Stonewall Uprising in the park across the street from the bar, but the four figures, two male and two female, are all painted white, obfuscating the enormous contribution of trans women or people of color like Johnson and Rivera, who were in the vanguard of the gay rights movement. Of all the things Marsha P. Johnson was known for, she was probably best known for being herself and fearing no judgment for dressing and living as a woman even as she struggled to survive on the streets of New York. 
Born in New Jersey in 1945 as Malcolm Michaels, Marcia began dressing in girls' clothes as a child, which did not go over at all well in their conservative Christian family. After high school, Marcia moved to Greenwich Village and legally changed her name. If you asked her what the P stood for, she would say, pay it no mind. That was also what she said to people who began to pry into her personal business. Which, by the way, it is never okay to do. Unless you work in a doctor's office, there's really no legitimate reason to ask someone you just met about their genitalia. In New York, Marcia struggled to make ends meet, often ending up homeless and supporting herself as a sex worker. She also had to contend with mental health issues and constant police harassment. Still, she found joy as a drag queen amidst the nightlife of Christopher Street. Marcia scoured thrift shops to make all her own costumes and quickly became a prominent fixture in the LGBTQ community as a drag mother, helping homeless and struggling LGBTQ youth. She even toured internationally with the Hot Peaches Drag Theater Company, but she always came back to the village. Marcia was an eccentric woman, known for her flamboyant hats and jewelry, which ensured she stood out in public. Her sense of style and pronounced self-assuredness even caught the eye of Andy Warhol, who included her in his Ladies and Gentlemen photo series. It was in the drag community that Johnson first met Sylvia Rivera. Born Ray Rivera in 1951, Sylvia lived most of her life in or near New York City. She was abandoned by her father early in life and became an orphan at three years old when her mother died of suicide. Sylvia was then raised by her Venezuelan grandmother, who disapproved of her effeminate behavior. After the grandmother caught Sylvia wearing makeup in fourth grade, she kicked Sylvia out of the house. I reiterate, in fourth grade. Sylvia was 11 years old and homeless. Also inevitably, she had to support herself through sex work. Things began to look up for her when she was taken in by the local community of drag queens who gave her the name Sylvia. Despite all of her own hardships, Sylvia was always more concerned with the welfare of others. Her activism began during the civil rights movement and continued through Vietnam War protests and second wave feminism. As someone who contended with systemic poverty, drug addiction, and racism, Sylvia used her voice for unity, sharing her stories, pain, and struggles to show people in her community that they were not alone. She amplified the voices of the most vulnerable members of the gay community, homeless youth, gay inmates in prison, and transgender people. Sylvia and Marcia founded the Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, or STAR. STAR was a radical political collective that also provided housing and support to homeless queer youth and sex workers. Rivera and Johnson were the mothers of the household. STAR is considered by many to be a groundbreaking organization in the queer liberation movement and a model for others to come. Rivera got the idea for STAR during a near week-long sit-in to protest the cancellation of dances that had been planned by the Christopher Street Liberation Day Committee, the organizers of the first gay pride parade. These dances were meant to be fundraisers for legal, medical, and housing needs in the gay community. STAR was for the street gay people, the street homeless people, and anybody that needed help at that time, Sylvia said in an interview. 
Marcia and I had always sneaked people into our hotel rooms. Marcia and I decided to get a building. We were trying to get away from the Mafia's control at the bars. Together with the Gay Liberation Front, Star hosted a fundraising dance to raise enough money to purchase the Star House, a four-bedroom apartment in a run-down building in the East Village, lacking electricity or heat. Rivera and Johnson worked hard to get Star House into shape and keep their kids fed and sheltered. They kept Star House alive the same way they kept themselves alive, through sex work, but they were only able to keep it open for about a year. Sex work was, as it is now, a dangerous profession, especially in 1970s New York. During one encounter, Marcia was shot. The bullet was so close to her spine, she would have been paralyzed if doctors tried to remove it. She spent the rest of her life suffering from intense pain thanks to that bullet. Star itself would only officially continue for two more years, but Sylvia and Marcia never gave up the fight. They fought for the Sexual Orientation Non-Discrimination Act to stop discrimination in employment, housing, public accommodations, education, credit, and the exercise of civil rights on the basis of sexual orientation. Bonus fact. On the topic of credit and discrimination, I got this fact directly from a banker earlier this week. The last known incident of a woman having to get a man to co-sign a bank product with her because she was a woman occurred in, I'm going to give you a second to guess what year, 1986. A woman trying to get a business loan had to have her 17-year-old son as a co-signer. Please point that out to anyone who says they don't need feminism because otherwise, that stuff would still be happening. The Sexual Orientation Non-Discrimination Act was defeated in 1971, 83, and 93, ultimately finally passing in 2002, 31 years after it was first introduced. Their next big action was to join other activists in the campaign for Intro 475, a municipal bill which Gay Activists Alliance helped introduce and which sought protections against sexual orientation discrimination. Many queer and trans people criticized GAA for ignoring protection for trans individuals, which they believed was an initial move to make the bill more palatable to WASPy lawmakers. Trans exclusion within the queer community became a major issue when the gender non-conforming people and drag queens had to go to the back of the 1973 Christopher Street Liberation Day Parade, as well as being excluded from speaking on stage. Rivera and fellow drag queen Lee Brewster stormed the stage during a feminist activist's speech. Rivera shouted, You go to bars because of what drag queens did for you, and these bitches tell us to stop being ourselves? Criticized other gay liberation activists for their assimilationist agenda, and led a chant of gay power. The feminist speaker took the mic again, decrying drag as misogynistic and demeaning. After the rally, Rivera chose to leave the movement for years, moving upstate. We died in 1973, the fourth anniversary of Stonewall, she wrote in Queens in Exile, The Forgotten Ones. That's when we were told we were a threat and an embarrassment to women because lesbians felt offended by our attire, us wearing makeup, 
It came down to a brutal battle on the stage that year at Washington Square Park between me and people I considered my comrades and friends. But the war doesn't end just because you leave, and Star was resurrected in 2001 under the new name Street Transgender Action Revolutionaries. In answer to the 2000 murder of Amanda Milan, a trans woman who was, by all accounts, minding her own business, waiting for a cab. Sylvia continued her work in the fight to advance the transgender civil rights bill in New York City and state, and to fight for self-determination for all gender nonconformists until her death from liver cancer in 2002. Marcia had died 10 years earlier in 1992. Her body had been found in the Hudson River off the West Village Piers. She was 46 years old. How she got there, though, is a mystery which may never be answered to the satisfaction of those who loved her. She cared about the community and making a change. Former Village Voice columnist and... She wasn't a party girl. She was in bars a lot, but that was part of her being part of the community. Friends say Johnson was acting normally when they last saw her around Greenwich Village two days before her body was found. When her body was found, the police quickly ruled the death a suicide something that outraged many of those who knew her and said she would never have taken her own life. Many point to the fact that Johnson was found with a bruise on the back of her head as evidence that she might have been attacked. But a former medical examiner concluded that the discoloration could have come from the body decomposing in water. As the AIDS epidemic picked up steam, Johnson, who was HIV positive, became a prominent activist with the AIDS coalition protesting the high cost of drugs that helped treat the disease, which at the time was called gay-related immune deficiency and often referred to as gay cancer. Those who claim Marcia took her own life use her medical history as a basis for their argument, that the pain from the bullet in her back had become so unbearable and her HIV diagnosis so depressing. Randy Wicker, Johnson's roommate at the time of her death and fellow activist, recalled seeing where her body had been placed after it was pulled from the river. As she laid there, her blood soaked into the pavement. There was Marsha's blood in everything, where her body had lain on the asphalt. It was there a makeshift memorial sprung up to Johnson, flowers dotting the ground. Her body was cremated, and the ashes were spread in the Hudson River, off the Christopher Street Pier. For months afterwards, Activists pushed for a more thorough investigation. Five months after her body was found, the outpouring reached a fever pitch. Among the voices was Tom Duane, then a city council member, and later the first openly gay New York State Senator with HIV, who demanded justice for Johnson, meeting with investigators in an effort to convince them to reopen the case. Her death deserved the most exhaustive investigation, Duane said in an interview, adding that the case... The case was also unusual because it was a very rapid determination. We were strong in our position that there needed to be more investigative work because even if Marsha was not world famous, she was also important to the LGBTQ community and the downtown community. It would be 20 years before police reopened Johnson's death for a second look in 2012. In the intervening years, speculation had run rampant, the uncertainty fueling wild conjecture. Maybe Johnson was killed in a mafia hit, some said. Others wondered if she slipped between the boards of the then-dilapidated pier 
while fleeing from an assault because witnesses claimed she was being harassed the night she disappeared. Ultimately, her death was changed from suicide to undetermined after the public pressure mounted on the authorities. But the New York Police Department maintains there is not enough evidence to indicate foul play in the case, which they closed again in 2013. NYPD detectives conducted a thorough and exhaustive investigation into this cold case, a police spokesperson said in a statement. The NYPD cold case squad looked into the case in 2012. The cause of death was changed from cause of death, drowning, manner of death, suicide, to cause of death, drowning, manner of death, undetermined. The case is now closed. But for Marcia's friends, that's not good enough. They continue to press for more to be done. Those who knew Marcia P. Johnson remember her determination. She was the Rosa Parks of the LGBTQ movement, transgender activist Mariah Lopez said. I am carrying on the legacy started by two homeless trans people. It is a group of trans activists who do the work and answer the phones in a grassroots way. We help those in hospitals and in prisons, Lopez said of Star Today. Sylvia and Marcia couldn't have envisioned the world we live in today, and Star cannot die. In the years since Johnson's death, New York City has undergone drastic changes. The grittiness of Greenwich Village has been replaced with posh restaurants, expensive bars, and high-rise apartments. The pier where Johnson's body was laid out has been repaired. Gay bars can operate without fear of legal reprisal. Marsha left behind a legacy that people could be themselves, said the bartender who was at the Stonewall Inn during the riots. You see it now. Drag queens that are performing in clubs, just jumping cabs, taking trains. But she was the beginning. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. We interrupt your scheduled program with this breaking announcement. Voiceover artist Moxie Labouche is offering 10 small businesses a free voiceover. No cost involved, even if you get background music on it. This can be a phone menu, an explainer video, a YouTube video, a social media ad, almost anything under the umbrella of corporate voiceover. All it will cost your business is a few minutes of time to leave a testimonial, review, or endorsement in places like Google Pages and LinkedIn. Email contact at moxielabouche.com to order your free voiceover today. Contact at moxielabouche.com. We now return you to the rest of the ad break. 
Have you gotten your copy of the game Love Letter from Z-Man Games yet? My husband and I have played it at least five times in the last week. I'm probably going to play it again tonight. It's a fun card strategy game where you're trying to get your letter of intent to the princess, and you have to carefully choose who you're going to have help you with that task. An average game lasts about 20 minutes, so it's real easy to squeeze one in. I've been enjoying it particularly because the small number of cards means I have a realistic chance of actually figuring out what my husband is holding. I don't get that in a lot of card-based games. It comes in a beautiful red velvet bag, and don't you just love little velvet bags? Small enough to take with you anywhere, marked for children 10 and up, but you know, I'd let a really clever eight-year-old play it. Plus, Love Letter costs less than two drive through value meals. You can get your copy of Love Letter from ZmanGames.com, your local Target, or, and I underscore this one, your local game store, brick and mortar mom and pop shop, you really need to have a copy of Love Letter from Z-Man Games. Here on Your Brain on Facts, I may not have all the answers, but if your question is how can I find a sponsor for my small podcast, I do have the only answer you need. Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace that connects podcasters and businesses, many of them small businesses, to create ad campaigns that work for both parties. This is not a situation where you're going to have to have 25,000 downloads per episode before anyone will even look at you. Podcorn is easy to use, free to set up, you retain all of the rights to your podcast and everything else, and you get to tailor the ad campaign in a way that works for you and the sponsor, whether it's a host-read ad or an interview. You can get started today by going to podcorn.com. It's like popcorn, but for podcasts podcorn.com That's the narrative we hear every June now. The gay rights movement was born in 1969 at a beloved gay bar called the Stonewall Inn. The Stonewall Riot began when a drag queen threw a brick at a police officer or a window. The gay community was emotionally reeling from the death of Judy Garland. The riot culminated in a Rockette-style kick line of drag queens facing off against the riot cops. Okay, those last two bullet points aren't as common, but they're definitely circulating. Let's break this history down point by point. The gay rights movement was born in 1969 at a beloved... Uh, no. That's when the straight people started to notice it. Even before Stonewall, there was the Daughters of Belitis a lesbian civil and political rights organization formed in San Francisco in 1955 as a social alternative to gay bars. Before that, there was the Mattachine Society formed in 1950. Try to imagine wanting to be out in 1950. And when we broaden our scope, as we should always do, we find the movement actually dates back at least to 1897 in Berlin with the founding of the first gay rights group by Magnus Hirschfeld. Stonewall wasn't the genesis, but it was certainly an accelerant. The Gay Liberation Front was born out of the ashes of Stonewall. Metaphorical ashes, of course. It was an accelerant, but was it a riot, an uprising, a rebellion, or what? The violence of the first night led to five more nights of more organized demonstrations, with a more optimistic feel, including chanting and dancing in the streets. The Stonewall Uprising didn't start the gay rights movement, but it was a galvanizing moment for LGBTQ political activism. 
leading to the formation of numerous gay rights organizations, including the Gay Liberation Front, Human Rights Campaign, GLAAD, Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, and PFLAG, Parents, Friends, and Family of Lesbians and Gays. Nine at a beloved gay bar called the Stonewall Inn. You heard me describe the Stonewall Inn at the top, so you already know it wasn't exactly cheers for the flamboyant set. In a recent documentary, those who were there that night describe it as a dump, a hellhole, dirty, run down, a sleazy mafia bar, and there were a lot nicer gay bars in the area. The Stonewall Riot began when a drag queen threw a brick at a police officer or a window. By their own accounts, it wasn't the two people most commonly credited, Marsha P. Johnson or Sylvia Rivera. Johnson herself later said that the riot was already in full swing when she arrived. I was uptown. I didn't get downtown until about 2 o'clock, because when I got downtown, the place was already on fire and it was a raid already. Similarly, Rivera delivered a speech in 2001, clarifying, I have been given the credit for throwing the first Molotov cocktail by many historians, but I always like to correct it. I threw the second one. According to witnesses, there was a gender non-conforming person who touched off the big to-do. She was very butch and she was tough, and the police were being rough with her and she was really fighting back. Some people say that person was Stormy Delaverie, who sometimes took credit for it and sometimes didn't. There's been no conclusive proof one way or the other who exactly that butch woman was. Something else we have no actual evidence of What exactly was thrown? Some people say it was a shot glass, which makes sense in the context of a bar, and also lets you call it the shot glass heard around the world. If it was a brick, where did they get it? Cities may be made of bricks, but they're rarely roaming around wild. Maybe there was a construction site nearby, people say. Okay, that is certainly possible. But it's more likely that someone left the scene to find a brick after the action was underway. If someone did leave a regular night at the bar looking for a brick, is that heroic or, you know, worrisome? Hey, Jamie, calling it a night already? No, just going out to find a brick. You'd have questions. Stones may have been used in the initial fracas if there were any loose cobblestones in the nearby tree pits, though. The gay community was emotionally reeling from the death of Judy Garland. (sighs) You're killing me, Smalls. Please tell me that none of my brainiacs believed that. The troubled singer-slash-actress, described in a Time magazine review as Elvis for homosexuals, died of a drug overdose on the 27th of June, 1969. Stonewall started the following night. Many LGBT people were fans of Garland, as were many straight people. She was one of the biggest stars of her lifetime. Her funeral was mentioned in one count them, one newspaper account of the uprising from a decidedly right-wing source. The 1997 book, The Gay Metropolis by Charles Kaiser, is one of the culprits in the propagation of this, I don't even want to call it a myth. No one will ever know for sure which was the most important reason for what happened next, the freshness in their minds of Judy Garland's funeral, or the example of all the previous rebellions of the 60s, the Civil Rights Revolution, the Sexual Revolution, and the Psychedelic Revolution, each of which had punctured gaping holes in crumbling traditions of passivity, puritanism, and bigotry. The second one, Chuck. 
it was the second one. This misbelief keeps popping up, including in the 2015 movie Stonewall, which should not be relied on for historical accuracy. Authors and journalists really need to get correlation doesn't equal causation tattooed on their forearm before they can get paid for their first story. To suggest that a celebrity's death is more likely to be the cause of insurrection rather than generations of repression and violence is trivializing, condescending, and demeaning, not to mention an affront to logic. The riot culminated in a rocket-style kickline of drag queens facing off against the riot cops. Uh, now this one is true. The Stonewall Uprising lasted for days, with the violence giving way to more organized protests, including, unbelievably, a kick line. No, there was not a kick line at Stonewall. There were many kick lines at Stonewall. And I'll be glad to give you the lyrics. We are the Stonewall girls. We wear our hair in curls. We don't wear underwear. To show our pubic hair. It was done to the the tune of uh, the Howdy Doody theme. It's Howdy Doody time. You're right, it is. So what are we left with? What was thrown? And who threw it? And does it really matter? Not really. The conflicting accounts from witnesses, dismissive early media coverage, and 50 years of articles, books, and documentaries have led to significant LGBTQ infighting over ownership of the rebellion. Different factions want it to be someone like them, a butch lesbian, a drag queen, a trans woman, a gay man, a person of color, someone who has their same adjectives. Stonewall has become, in the words of preeminent LGBTQ historian Susan Stryker, an arena in which different identity groups go at each other, often vehemently, making historical claims that are ultimately objectively unverifiable to wage contemporary struggles. And this squabbling obscures the fundamental importance of Stonewall. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. The Stonewall Rebellion, or riot, or uprising, whatever you call it, was crucial precisely because we can't say it was one lone person fighting back against the police violence. The real lesson to take away is that a racially diverse group of street queens, drag kings, gay men, and more rose up against systemic persecution. Unlike earlier riots and movements, Stonewall gained world historical significance because it was the first time a diverse group of LGBTQ people fought back together. Thanks to our guest quote readers, David from Papa PhD, Rupert Hughes, Tyler Donis, Roman Heroes, and Being This Person, Tondi from My Handle is Jonathan Blade. Remember, you can always find the links to the source material as well as the script for the show at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. Stay safe. And to all my friends who call themselves gay, bi, lesbian, queer, trans, non-conforming, non-binary, whatever, who I am proud to say are too numerous in my life to name here, I see you and I love you.